Albert Einstein once said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. As today's technology and global risks race ahead of our understanding and stretch the boundaries of humanity, we face unprecedented ethical conundrums. I believe that reaching beyond the sciences and religion to that third branch, the arts, offers essential insight into these challenges. I call ethical decision-making on the borders of humanity, ethics on the edge. We all teeter on the edge. How do we define a life well-lived in a partly virtual world? Where do we look for moral guidelines and truth when curated selves befriend each other through algorithms? How do we make conscionable decisions in the uncharted territory of civilian space travel, designer genetics, and artificial intelligence? And what about the problems that are still on the ethical edge, but shouldn't be, such as inequality or racism? Please join me in conversation with some of the world's leading artists and arts world pioneers as we explore some of today's most challenging ethical questions through the lens of the visual and performing arts, architecture, and literature. John, thank you so much for speaking with me, uh, and it's particularly a pleasure to welcome you to London. It's great to be here. Um, before we get to talking about your wonderful new book, Move Fast and Break Things, or to talking about some of today's most cutting-edge ethics issues, can you talk a little bit about your own guiding moral principles, or true north, or however you want to put it? What are the principles that guide your own decision-making, um, and how have they changed, if at all, during all the many different phases of your career? Well, you know, I... I'm a child of the 60s, so I, I came of age and into some kind of emotional maturity in around 1962. So I was born in 1947, so I was just kind of understanding really where the world worked around 1962. And this is when Dr. Martin Luther King was thrown into jail in Birmingham, and he wrote this famous letter from the Birmingham jail, and, and essentially kind of laid out what was to become the civil rights movement. And because I also happened to be at that time a fan of Bob Dylan, who was mm -hmm. writing Blowing in the Wind, or The Times They Are Changing, he was, mm -hmm. there was this merger of culture and politics. It was almost perfect, mm -hmm. you know, at least, from my point of view, my politics and my culture were, were all aimed towards justice. And that was, justice was the great justice, okay. overarching theme. So I'm also lucky enough that, you know, my parents were, you know, taught me about how to be decent towards women and how to act in the world and not be uh, a creep. Mm -hmm. And I kind of listen to that and and I think my mother and my father kind of helped form my my moral point of view and I, that never really changed so I mean I guess even you know and we'll get to this even in the mid 80s you know when I went to work at Merrill Lynch as a mergers and acquisition banker I I tried to keep to those things and and eventually I had to leave Merrill Lynch because it was just the the contradiction between what was going on in 
in the deal world and what I wanted to do with my life was just too great. And I had to, I left after literally four and a half years. Mm -hmm. So it didn't work. So I've been lucky enough that I've mostly been my own boss. You know, I was an independent producer in both mm -hmm. music and the film world. And so you really, you get to choose what you do. And sometimes you can get the stuff finance and sometimes you can't and sometimes but you can do what you want and you can behave in accordance with your own yeah um, yeah guiding principles as yeah. I call them um, and interestingly enough so you were actually more than a fan of Dylan you were uh, Dylan's tour manager right? yeah uh, and also tour manager for the band yeah so you had the music industry and then you had Hollywood and incidentally I just watched 30 years late the last waltz uh -huh. uh, that you produced and right. for Martin Scorsese directing. Right. So the, the band's last concert with a right. whole roster of extraordinary musicians. Right. And that seemed to work well for you. And then investment banking, maybe not so well. And then you became an entrepreneur with right. uh, Entertainer. So the first, if I understand correctly, the first video online demand company. Right, it was um, the first streaming video on demand service. And then academia. So as a professor and director of the Annenberg Innovation Lab at USC, you know, academic freedom, you also get to function in accordance with your own principles. Yeah, I mean, the academy is pretty good about allowing you to speak your mind. Mm -hmm. and, and that's somewhat unique in American society. You can't necessarily do that mm -hmm. if you work for a big company or mm -hmm. something. What prompted the book? Uh, you've had a lot of these ideas and you've been looking at the sort of the juxtaposition or the interaction between culture, music industry in particular, and technology for a while. And you had a personal experience with the drummer of, from right. the band. But also I read that there was a particular moment for you around the 2016 US presidential election where you just sort of said enough. And Facebook and fake news was also right. a trigger. Is that is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the book came out of a, a kind of searing personal experience with a guy named Levon Helm, who was the drummer and the lead singer in the band. Mm -hmm. And he was a country boy, you know, but he managed to make a decent living. I mean, the band weren't superstars like Cream or the Rolling Stones, but they made a decent middle-class living. And the good thing about the music industry in the 70s and 80s, even into the 90s, was that you could make money off of your recordings. The royalties, when people would buy a CD, the the group would actually get mm -hmm. a good part of that. So Levon made maybe as much as $100,000 a year, every year, mm -hmm. long past the time they stopped recording. Because in the 80s, the CD came in and everybody renewed their collection. And so that continued right up till the year 2000. And in the year 2000, the service called Napster showed up. And Napster was the first pirate recording service and it was invented by a guy named Sean Parker and another guy named Sean Fanning. Uh, Sean Parker went on to become the president of Facebook mm -hmm. and they both were just kind of clueless about the rights of artists and so the royalties for the band just stopped because anybody who wanted to get the old recordings just went on the internet and got them for free and Levon got throat cancer that same year 2000. Oh, wow. So he couldn't go out and sing as a solo artist or do anything. And he didn't have enough money 
to pay for his health care. And that just seemed incredibly unfair. And I would go on YouTube around 2005, 2006 and see recordings of the band like The Wade or The Night They Drove with Dixon that had three or four million streams on YouTube. And yet there was no money. And the no artists money. were not getting compensated at all. There was no money for the artists. So I tried to kind of understand how that had happened. And it, what became clear to me was that the, there, this gigantic amount of money had been reallocated from people who made the work, whether they were journalists, musicians, photographers, you know, movie makers, to people who owned the portals to which mm -hmm. you access the content, Google, mm -hmm. Facebook, and Amazon. And, you know, while record royalties and record revenues fell by 72% over that period, Google's revenues grew by 30, 40, 50% a year. And so it, it just was totally screwed up. Just to be clear about this, were the royalty rights contractual rights between the artists and, say, a record company, or were they copyright or sort of, you know, federal law-protected rights? Well, they were both. They were contractual rights between an artist, and in other words, for every record that was sold, a group like the band might get a dollar out of a $6 wholesale sale, or $2. Um, but the problem was that when records themselves, the physical goods stopped selling, because mm -hmm. anybody could get the content for free, then whatever contractual right was meaningless. So now, the record companies had just as much problem as the artists. Right, I mean, but it's an interesting point in history because you have consumers consuming off of Napster or some of these other sites and not really asking themselves the question, is this right? Right, uh, nobody, seemed to think about that. Right. Nobody seemed to worry that the fact that every tune was available on YouTube for mm -hmm. free and is still today uh, is, is basically picking the pocket of every musician in the world. Mm -hmm. um, now, look, everybody, it's nice to have free stuff, but you know, you don't go around and expect to have free food. Mm -hmm. You know, it's only art and entertainment mm. seems to be infected by this disease. How do we broaden the conversation? So the regulators are involved, the artists are involved, these platforms are involved, uh, consumers are involved. How do we decide who has what responsibility, and in particular, what ethical responsibility for making sure that there's some fair allocation of the positives of the compensation, right. um, some way to motivate society properly so that we continue to have great artists and great right. journalists, um, and some way to make sure that, and we'll come to this more in detail in a minute, but that some of the negative things that are happening on these platforms don't happen. Right. How do we think about the allocation of that responsibility? Well, first problem is that it's very hard to just browbeat young people mm -hmm. into not getting free music. Mm -hmm. I mean, the movie business tried that, and it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. And then you could try and sue the individual consumer, and that doesn't really work either. So my take is, is the responsibility for the people who run the platforms mm -hmm. to make sure that the people who get paid are, are the artists. Um, and so that has a double side, one of which is 
Well, most of these platforms are ad supported. And so the people who pay for ads, you know, advertisers, ought to be careful where they put their ads. So I noticed recently a controversy in England because YouTube is running lots of ads for kind of child pedophile kind of stuff. I Terrible. mean, they're, they're, there was a recent article in the Times and yeah. there were even sort of blocked out photographs. Right. Yeah, pedophilia. So YouTube's running all this content mm -hmm. that's just mm -hmm. horrible mm -hmm. stuff. And yet the people who are posting that are getting paid by advertisers. Mm -hmm. So it's the advertiser who should be responsible, just in the same way that the same advertiser were kind of shocked that YouTube was running ISIS mm -hmm. recruitment videos. And in fairness, I think the corporates did react. So I think Adidas and Diageo and some of these companies are reacting and saying they're pulling their advertising. Yeah, and, the and question that's, is, that's good. Yeah, it is very good. That's, that's, a, that's a social ethical responsibility mm -hmm. to not be supporting bad stuff. But that same thing should apply to I shouldn't support free content. In other words, I shouldn't put my ads mm -hmm. on pirate sites mm -hmm. or I shouldn't put my ads on YouTube. That's, that's a very running interesting point because society tends to react much more strongly to pedophilia right. uh, or ISIS right. than to you know, the right. pirated content and possibly because we all don't understand very well what that is and where it is right. uh, and where there is kind of violation of fair compensation and right. fair rights for artists. So that's, that's the first mm -hmm. problem. The second problem is that the, the big sites, that is YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, have got to begin to police their platforms better. Um, and partially that comes back into the question you asked about the election and all that. In other words, the problem with these platforms is they have lived under, at least in the United States, I don't know really about the UK, but they've lived under what's called a safe harbor regulation, which meant that no one could sue them for putting up content that they either objected to or that they didn't own. Um, the, the notion was, when this law was passed, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, was that, that you couldn't ask Verizon, say, or British Telecom to police all the content was flowing over its pipe, which is a reasonable idea. It is a reasonable idea. But yeah. YouTube is different. YouTube actually polices its pipes quite well. There's no actually outright pornography. There's mm -hmm. lots of sketchy stuff, but mm -hmm. there's not just flat out porn on YouTube because YouTube has very good artificial intelligence when it sees real porn then it blocks it from ever getting on the platform. I want to just pause for a second here. I, you used a term in your book that I thought was excellent, which was false choices. And you use an example, if I'm remembering correctly, where some of the social media companies are saying, if you want us to do social good, like, you know, Tayer Square, right. um, you know, the Arab Spring, then you can't regulate us. Right. Um, and you point that up as a false choice, which I thought was a fantastic term. Because if they're capable of, as you're saying, eradicating pornography, then they're capable of other things. For example, the, the recent controversy over online sex trafficking in the right. US. And a number of them came out and said it, they were against it. They were lobbyists in Washington, et cetera. But if, I think your point is that if they're capable of eradicating one thing, they're capable of eradicating other harms yeah. to society. I mean, it's shocking to me, but Google mm -hmm. fought that law to ban mm -hmm. online child sex traffic, mm -hmm. tooth and nail.
until at some point somebody said to them, this is really you're on the stupid wrong side of what this. you're doing. You're right. really on the wrong side and you're just going to sully your reputation mm -hmm. so badly. And then they just gave up mm -hmm. and they're going to let that law pass. Now that is the first modification of this safe harbor mm -hmm. that they've ever allowed. Mm -hmm. But to my point of view, the all those ISIS videos or these childhood semi-pedophile mm -hmm. videos are just as evil mm -hmm. of course as, they are. As, the, as, as the flat out child mm -hmm. sex trafficking. And incidentally, stuff. whilst there can be certain areas, for example, we'll get into terrorism in a moment, right. where there might be legitimate free speech concerns. And even there, um, I'm, I'm interested in your view about the company's responsibility right. to take ter terrorist content down and also the regulatory right. efforts. Um, this is clearly not protected speech. Right. There's no part of this that is protected right. speech, aside from the outrageous uh, you know, health and safety and, and moral right. issue. So there isn't even the counter-argument of free speech. Um, no, and you know, I mean, Justice Holmes said you can't yell fire in a, mm -hmm. in a crowded theater, mm -hmm. you know, when it didn't happen. You, mm -hmm. you, you, you're just gonna cause mm -hmm. chaos. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what's happening here. Mm -hmm. I think these, issues of false choices are, are strange. I, I, I gave a speech in Miami the other day uh, at the Miami Book Festival, and then there was a Q&A session, you know, and, and lots of the questions were very supportive of what I was saying. Then this gentleman got up and said, how come you don't talk about all the wonderful things Facebook has done to help make the Arab Spring happen and, uh, you know, make, create real community bonds and mm -hmm. things like that. And I said, well, I do talk about some of that, but I'm also very skeptical, mm -hmm. as were the people who created the Arab Spring, that actually Facebook really did anything more than just uh, get them all arrested mm -hmm. as soon as, you know, because people would trace mm -hmm. them through their Facebook page. But I think it's an interesting point. I mean, I think these companies have brought some good. Um, I have to confess that I'm on Google every day. Mm -hmm. um, so Google in particular, I find useful for, for yeah. research and I, mean, and, and I find it- We have you know, no choice. It, no, we have no choice. But I think also it does, it, it is an incredibly important company on the positive side. Right. Um, but I think the question is, is somewhat ill-advised and it reminds me of what I saw just on the news this morning about some of the sexual harassment claims. And uh, one of the political leaders in the US, Nancy Pelosi, is standing up for someone saying, but he has a long track record of being good to women. Right. Uh, and, and that's really not the point. No. The point is if you are committing sexual harassment or sexual assault, right. whatever your record is, right. th that behavior has to be dealt with. In right. the same way that you know, it's whether or not there's good, the, the negative behavior has to be dealt with. Yeah, um, totally. But the, but the responsibility isn't entirely on the shoulders of the companies. So if we come back to regulation, we talked about this online sex trafficking regulation and just more generally the safe harbor. What else would you like to see uh, as highest priority efforts from regulators? Well, first off, I should state at the beginning that I do not think that there is a market solution to this problem of monopoly. You know, there's a, a kind of libertarian frame of mind in the United States which says that the market will always figure out a solution to these things. The problem is that no one is going to start a startup to take on Google in the search advertising space. It just hasn't happened. Google has been essentially dominant for almost 20 years now, and nobody has emerged to try and challenge them. Um, I think that Facebook 
also has the same kind of domination between Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook. They have almost 75% of all mobile social traffic. Mm -hmm. And I think that Amazon, clearly in the books business and now maybe increasingly some other businesses, has a complete monopoly lock on the thing. So in the sense that, like you, I realize I cannot do without Google. Mm -hmm. I cannot really do without Amazon. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the way I buy books, mm -hmm. you know? And, and as a person writing a book, I couldn't say, well, I don't want my book on Amazon. That would just be suicide. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, what do we do? So it does seem to me that government has a real role to play. Um, the EU has been leading in this. So the European Union fined Google $2.7 billion a few months ago because Google was favoring its content over the content of other companies that were, say, for instance, providing restaurant recommendations or hotel recommendations or travel, you know, all those sorts of things. So that is what in the U.S. we call a net neutrality issue. In other words, if you want to be the pipe, that is the search engine, the way people find stuff, mm -hmm. and you want to be a content provider as well, you can't promote your content over those of other people. That's, that's a pretty plain vanilla conflict of interest in my ethics right. terms. Right, exactly. So, and the same thing would apply to Amazon. Amazon is now a publisher. Amazon is now a maker of videos and TV shows and everything. Well, if I go on Amazon, I shouldn't be forced to take Amazon's TV shows or other shows that other people are being offered as sellers on Amazon. So it seems to me that some kind of net neutrality regulation, which has never really been applied to the internet, it's always been applied to like cable television or something. You can't be Comcast and then just favor only Com mm -hmm. NBC content, you know that kind of stuff, because Comcast owns NBC, right? So that's one issue. Um, and then I think privacy is the other big issue. And I think this is maybe the ethical question of our time. Mm -hmm. There is an assumption that the millennial generation doesn't care a bit about privacy. But I do not think that's true. I mean, I've been teaching for the last 13 years. I know a lot of kids are creeped out about these ads following them around the internet everywhere. And more and more of them are using ad blockers, which says to me, if, if the millennial uptake on ad blockers is growing 40, 50, 60% a year, that says to me they do care about privacy. And that's a sign that maybe some kind of privacy regulation is important. We also have a responsibility to teach them what privacy is. Since they've right. grown up in this world, they have a different notion of what's possible in terms of privacy. Right. Um, but I know in my own students at Stanford as well, they very much care about privacy. Some of them have actually stepped out of social media when they're in the job market in particular right. because they just think it's dangerous. Right. Uh, as well, when they're applying to graduate school, they yeah. think that they don't want graduate admissions offices looking at a Facebook uh, history. Right. Um, but and in they're addition, smart to do you know, that. They are smart to do that. Um, but in addition, they're not happy to have their data picked up and collected and used however and wherever. Right. Uh, and a recent example that I've been working with a little bit is this Amazon Echo Look. And, and it's not to pick on Amazon um, in particular, but this product is sort of one of these uh, home devices 
that will video your fashion uh, choices right. and then rank them. But what they don't tell you is that while it's videoing you trying on your outfits, it's also picking up the prescription medication on right. your counter in your right. closet. Right. And so, and this data is getting collected and we're told it's in the cloud. We don't know who can use it. We don't know who can access it. Right. And so does that mean at some point your boss will know that you have a medical condition or your insurance company um, and all of these contracts, as you know, the terms of use of all of these companies that we're talking about are very much in, in you know, one-sided. They're, you know, the company can do anything they want with the data. The consumer can't really do anything. And at the end, after 13, 14 single space pages, they all say we have a maximum hundred US dollar liability or something like right. that. Um, so I'm wondering also what your take is on that, on, on the interaction, particularly with young consumers, for example, the terms of use, you know, my, well, my 15 year old can be on Facebook according to their rules. And I can't imagine that he's ever read the terms of use or would understand what's going on. Kids, especially, but I think also our generation doesn't really understand the depth of the privacy invasion of, and how much data these companies have on you. Three simple facts. The smartphone you carry around has in it something called an accelerometer. That accelerometer can to a 90% degree record the tremors of Parkinson's disease. That's the first time I've heard and that. And store That's... it on the device. Now, it's not in any kind of safe HIPAA mm -hmm. protected space. It's just there on the device. And it's a unique tremor that, that it can pretty much guess. And so that's sitting there. And who's to keep them from selling that to your health insurance company or to your employer or something like that? Most people think their auto insurance is based on how well they drive, what their driving record is. It's not true at all. If you park your car in this neighborhood every day, which is potentially somewhat sketchy neighborhood. Right, my apologies. <laughs> We're no, inviting you to a somewhat sketchy to be here, neighborhood but, of London. But I'm saying <laughs> right. your auto insurance rates would be higher than if you parked your car in Knightsbury. Mm -hmm. um, because the insurance company considers this a place where cars get stolen. And through your cell phone, the insurance they companies know, know where, where, you, where you're parking your where car. You park your car. Yeah. There are so many things. I mean, I was at a very big tech conference run by Tim O'Reilly in San Francisco three weeks ago, and an important engineer from Google said, consider the smartphone like a one-way mirror. You think you're looking into and you're seeing yourself back like the mirror, but on the other side, we're looking at you and everything you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and every store you go into, we know You've been there. We can well, connect that up the, to your shopping Well, I appreciate the honesty data. and the simple metaphor of this Google engineer, because really, it, it's I had never heard either of the examples you just gave. Right. Uh, so, to the point about millennials or you know younger not caring about privacy, um, I agree with you. I'm not sure it's it's entirely true. Um, if we can shift gears a little bit now and, sure. and focus on truth. Sure. I had the privilege of interviewing Salman Rushdie about three months ago, and he talked about a lecture he gave, and again, a situation in a Q&A afterwards, right. where a gentleman said to him, you know, climate change doesn't exist. Right. And they went back and forth, and he said, I tried to explain to this gentleman that it isn't because he thinks the world is flat, that it's flat, 
right. and that the world doesn't need him to believe that it's round for it to be round. Right. Um, we seem to have started, and in particular around the 2016 election, with this idea that truth is something that uh, can be weaponized, right. uh, with this idea that truth, or at least expertise, might not have the value we once attributed right. to it. What do you make of all of this, and, and well, you know, the real we, risk? we start from the first thing, which goes back to this notion that these companies can't control what's on their platforms. Okay, so that allows them then to be propaganda vehicles for anybody who wants to put any kind of nonsense out there. So if I want to write that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump and make a post about that, or even a paid post, mm -hmm. I can do that. Mm -hmm. Now, what's not really understood was that Facebook, up until May, beginning of May 2016, had humans curating the trending topics part of their system. Mm -hmm. But Fox News and Breitbart hammered on them on a daily basis saying the humans were prejudiced against conservative news. And so mm -hmm. they had to get rid of the humans. Mm -hmm. So eventually Mark Zuckerberg gave in and they took the humans out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And literally you can see on the graph that that's exactly where fake news took off. Because once the humans were out of the equation, mm -hmm. The computer didn't know that the Pope didn't endorse Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so once you had only popularity as the thing as to what, so you could post the Pope endorsed Donald Trump, and then you could hit it with 500,000 bots mm -hmm. that you had access to, mm -hmm. and you could force it to the top of the Google search algorithm. You could force it to the top of the Facebook trending topics. Mm -hmm. And so that gave us this notion of fake news. Now, what's happened is that Trump and others have weaponized that in their own way into saying that everything that they say is fake. And mm -hmm. so we cannot anymore trust anybody to say anything. And so everything is kind of relative and mm -hmm. news is whatever you want it to be. Now. You know, we've been living in these kind of filter bubbles for a while, since the beginning of social media. This notion that Facebook only gives me what it thinks I will like. Mm -hmm. And so it already pre-screens all the contradictory mm -hmm. opinions that it might put in front of me. It takes them out of my So feet. all the kind of a debate and exposure to alternative ideas that a liberal democratic anyway. society needs in order to try to negotiate truth. Yeah, Facebook knows you don't wanna know conflicting mm -hmm. experience. You don't click on it, mm -hmm. you don't like it, mm -hmm. so it doesn't even bother putting it in front of you. Um, so that's leading us into this tunnel where each of us lives in our own little world unmediated by any contradictory information. And because, at least in the U.S., 66% of the people get see mm -hmm. Facebook as their primary news source, mm -hmm. that becomes even more dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because they're not out there looking on the newsstand at all these other potential 
sources of news. They're not reading The Economist or anything. They're just looking at their newsfeed. And their newsfeed is filled with, on the left, you know, certain things, or on the right, certain things. And that's all they get. Well, so you raise many, many interesting points there. I mean, one is that, you know, you can understand that Mark Zuckerberg is also learning a little bit as we go along. I would like the companies myself to be more proactive in the ethics and to do what I call real-time ethics right. or ahead-of-time ethics, which means before you put a product out there, you think about the right. ethics. You don't wait to see the potential nefarious implications. Um, but you can understand that there's been sort of shifts in, in from humans to algorithms, and maybe we need both. Um, and you can understand that Facebook wouldn't want to be censoring the news and that we wouldn't want Facebook to be censoring the news in some sort of um, literal sense of the term. But how effective are the mainstream media outlets, The Economist, The New York Times, The Washington Post, et cetera, in combating this fake news? Uh, and what do we do about the demise of expertise? Because it seems that along with this fake news, expertise is being more broadly called into question. Well, that's a, that's a societal problem. I mean, I, I, I do believe that the New York Times, The Washington Post, mm -hmm. The Guardian, The London Times mm -hmm. are doing their best to present the news in an honest way and to not print stuff mm -hmm. that they know to be untrue. Now, that is not something that Breitbart or Gateway Pundit or these mm -hmm. propaganda organizations have any intention of doing. Mm -hmm. they, they're there to, to be propaganda organs. So, and, and quite honestly, in the United States, the Fox television news network is a propaganda organ. Mm -hmm. So that's not something without a kind of informed public that we can deal with. I mean, if, if I want to be just a Fox News watcher and only get my print stuff from Breitbart, I can't prevent you from that lifestyle, <laughs> you know? Well, and we come back to this issue of scattered power and what I call scattered power without accompanying ethical responsibility. So anyone with a cell phone can recruit a terrorist or can be a participant in the fake news epidemic. Right. Um, but we are not finding a way, as you said earlier, earlier about the music industry, to have citizens take responsibility. Right. And it's probably not practical. Um, it's probably not practical. We're not, individuals don't have time in their day to verify truth or to cross-check news, right. um, et cetera, in, in any way, in, you know, any more than they're likely to say, well, I'm not going to go on this free music site. Well, I mean, maybe this leads us to an even deeper kind of existential question is, what is, is the net use of Facebook a positive social good? How do you answer that question? I could make question? a pretty good argument that it is not. I could make an argument that from a productivity point of view, the average 25-year-old working in an office in London is wasting two hours a day of their time that they're being paid for looking at Facebook. Mm -hmm. I could argue that from a point of view of their being an informed citizen, Facebook is not informing them mm -hmm. anything. But I could also argue that Facebook basically is in business to do only one thing, which is to suggest products to you at the moment of maximum vulnerability, when you're lonely, when whatever, to 
get you to buy stuff you don't need. Mm-hmm. And that, that Facebook was the ultimate advertising vehicle that we never had before because you're carrying it around in your pocket and it knows your mood. I mean, Facebook has proven that time mm-hmm. again. It knows exactly what your mood and it knows when you're most vulnerable. And by the way, you happen to be only 100 meters from the store that it's mm-hmm. going to suggest that if you went in that store, you might feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point, you know, as citizens, we have to understand, are we just gerbils on a wheel running around trying to get ahead of mm-hmm. our neighbor be better? Or, and, and we think we can do that by spending and mm-hmm. by getting stuff. Or um, are we free human beings here for other reasons? Does Facebook help us in that understanding? No, not at all. Facebook is there to do one thing. When I tell my students, look, you're spending two hours a day of free labor working for Mark Zuckerberg. Do you understand that what you're doing? Mm -hmm. What, What do you mean? Well, you are manufacturing advertising profiles for him. That's his product. He has no product that he spends any money on. His product is to create an advertising vehicle, to create two billion profiles of two billion individual citizens that can be sold to. And he then sells that to marketers. Well, even Sean Parker has come back out and said recently in mainstream press and op-eds and the like that... Uh, the you know the goal of these companies is to generate addiction. Yeah, uh, and, and they're really good at it. And they're really good at it. And and Facebook isn't the only one. Um, but and you no, see, but you know, they're the main one. But you see it in society. You see that at a bus stop or in a restaurant, no. especially young people, but all of us. I mean, we, at Ooh, any age, we can't have five minutes where we actually have no. to be patient anymore. Well, the average citizen in the eighteen to thirty range mm-hmm. checks their smartphone about 225 times a day. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that only gives them a few minutes between times that they check mm-hmm. it out. And of course, the like, which is the basic currency of, of Facebook, is essentially, I don't know if you remember Psych 101, the mm-hmm. Skinner box, but you've got that little rat in the box, and there's a white bar that the rat can click on. It doesn't always get a food pellet every time it clicks the bar. It randomly gets a food pellet when it clicks the bar. If it got a food pellet every time it clicked the bar, it would only click the bar when, when it was, was hungry. hungry. Yeah. But it doesn't, that doesn't happen. So because it's random, it constantly clicks the bar and occasionally it'll get fed. That's what the like is. You don't always get a like every time you post something. It's an interesting analogy. But yeah. you you randomly, you check all the time to see, especially if you're young and you're on Instagram, mm-hmm. you check how many, that's what makes you feel good. I got mm-hmm. 600 likes. I feel great. Mm-hmm. I feel fulfilled. I feel heard. Mm-hmm. But it's addiction. The most popular book in Silicon Valley is called Hooked, mm-hmm. How to Build Addictive Applications. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to come back to the comment just at the beginning of this this last part of the discussion where you talk about, you know, is this helping us to engage better in society? Is this helping us uh, to be better human beings? Right. We have a lot going on in the news um, that I call 
you know, on the edge but shouldn't be in my ethics on the edge class at Stanford. So the edgy things should be things like transplanting, you know, organs grown in pigs into human. The edgy things should be AI. It right. shouldn't be uh, the Rohingyas. It right. shouldn't be uh, what's going on in Yemen right. um, with 400,000 children dying of starvation. Right. What is your view of the relationship between technology and in particular the technologies we've been talking about and these terrible tragedies and global crises that continue? Is there any role that technology should be playing that it isn't? Is this independent of technology? Well, if they were willing to take some kind of editorial stance, in other mm -hmm. words, if Facebook or even YouTube acknowledged that they were a publishing organization, which of course, they don't want to do that mm -hmm. because then they wouldn't have safe harbor. Right. Then they could probably play a fairly positive role in the same way that an editorial in the New York Times about the Rohingya mm -hmm. could mm -hmm. play. Um, they don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be seen as being political. And so they avoid that mm -hmm. like the plague. On the other hand, these issues of artificial intelligence and robotics are really critical issues. Mm -hmm. And they have opinions about those. Mm -hmm. They think it's all good. Mm -hmm. It's all, progress is a linear transition and life will always get better because technology. Now the question you have to ask yourself, and I was at a, a very big conference called CODE, which mm -hmm. is a tech conference. And Mark Andreessen, who is a very famous, mm -hmm. you venture probably capitalist. know him well, having been yeah. at Stanford, venture capitalist, made the statement that within 10 years, the long haul trucking business in the United States would be totally automated. That is that self-driving trucks mm -hmm. would be the standard. So he came backstage after his speech and I was about to go on stage and I said to him, okay, so what do you do about the five million people mm -hmm. who drive trucks, who are working class, they're not Stanford educated people, they're not gonna go to work coding for Google. Mm -hmm. What are you gonna do about them? And he said, it's not my problem. It's a politician's problem. I mean, he has a point, and I've heard him make this point you know, previously, about the very big difference in the statistics of automobile accident deaths and serious injuries in developing countries versus countries like the US. Um, and even in the UK, we have a terrible number of uh, fatal car crashes linked to trucks. So there's a safety issue that may well be addressed and certainly an inequality issue that may well be addressed with self-driving cars and in particularly in the developing world. How do you see that as an inequality issue? I see it as an inequality issue, which is a person in a developing country would have a significantly higher risk of dying in an automobile accident than someone say in the US. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean um, to my earlier point about integrating ethics into the technology, it doesn't mean that there isn't a responsibility to say, we are going to introduce this new technology, whether it's AI or a new social right. media app, and what are the potential consequences and how are we gonna allocate the responsibility for managing those ethically? Um, so- We're not having this discussion. No, we're not having this discussion. societal. Right, exactly. These guys are making mm -hmm. the decisions mm -hmm. in their companies, mm -hmm. and by the way, Facebook, Google, Amazon will dominate the AI business mm -hmm. because they have all the data mm -hmm. and all, they have all the data scientists. You know mm -hmm. they get the best people out of Stanford mm -hmm. 
they, they pay more than anybody else. It's a reinforcing cycle because it was a reinforcing cycle because they have the capacity to pay. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and because the data scientists work want to work on big data sets, mm -hmm. who has the big data sets? Mm -hmm. Amazon, Google, mm -hmm. and Facebook. Mm -hmm. So they're going to just get better and better and better at. It. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you talked about the Amazon Alexa mm -hmm. home mm -hmm. speaker, they mm -hmm. call it. It's not a speaker, it's a microphone. Right. right, and so out of that is just it's just like a big data vacuum mm -hmm. in your house, mm -hmm. collecting random things you may say to your husband or your children, mm -hmm. and random words would mm -hmm. then become keywords that become then used to sell you something new. Mm -hmm. So, um, I quite frankly think that it would be helpful to have a discussion about some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Because this notion that technology is always gonna bring us the, the la latest, mm -hmm. greatest world is not only not necessarily true, but it's also leading us to increased economic inequality. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, I've been arguing for some time that we need a broader societal conversation that needs to include regulators, it needs to include ethicists, it needs to include these big right. companies and consumers and all kinds of people, but also when I say societal, I don't mean US. I mean, all of these have cross-border impacts um, and that it shouldn't be the innovators and those who control innovation, whether it's supermajority voting shares or, or right. the VC world, shouldn't be the innovators who are controlling when and how innovations are unleashed on society. And I say that as a very pro-innovation, pro-business ethics yeah. person. Um, but nonetheless, it cannot be. I mean, that's a form of dictatorship. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a Luddite. I'm yeah. very pro-business. Mm -hmm. I have essentially believe that technology can be a huge force mm -hmm. for good. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is if, if the politicians just seed the discussion and, you know, and it's not a right or left issue at all. Absolutely. I mean, Obama was horrible on this mm -hmm. stuff. Obama just thought that Eric Schmidt was the smartest guy in the world and essentially treated him like a deputy chief of staff. Mm -hmm. So he needed someone to run his patent office. Well, Eric's got this great person from yeah. Google to run our patent office. You want an assistant officer. attorney general for antitrust? Well, here's our lawyer from Wilson Sonsini. Yeah. You can yeah. run the antitrust division. Uh, you want a CTO in the White House? Mm -hmm. Well, here, we'll loan you our CTO. Mm -hmm. You know, it, and at the end, Google had mm -hmm. totally captured mm -hmm. the, the White House. So when it came to the Federal Trade Commission trying to look at Google with the same set of facts that the EU decided a $2.7 billion fine, the FTC was totally hamstrung by the politicians who said, mm -hmm. no, you, mm -hmm. you can't do this because you'll hurt innovation. Mm -hmm. It's just like people saying, you can't bring antitrust suits because they're anti-innovation. Mm -hmm. That's total nonsense. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley would not have existed if it hadn't been for antitrust. Because in 1956, we had a monopoly phone company in the United States, AT&T, and their research and development facility, Bell Labs, had the patent for the transistor, the laser, the satellite, the cellular phone system, every 
essential piece of the mm -hmm. digital age was owned by Bell Labs. Mm -hmm. And the government said to Bell Labs, okay, in return for AT&T staying as a monopoly phone system, you, Bell Labs, have to license every patent you own for free to any American who wants to get a license. So out of that came Texas Instruments, Hewlett Packard, Fairchild Semiconductor, Intel, mm -hmm. uh, Motorola, ComSat, all these companies were born, which was the beginning of Silicon Valley, out of these free patents mm -hmm. that came from a monopoly. Mm -hmm. But it's not just a, a nonpartisan issue. It isn't a single sector issue. So the other day I was watching some of the hearings in Washington because some of the social media companies were called to Washington to talk about the Russia right. case. And I heard Dianne Feinstein say to one of the senior lawyers, and I'm not sure which company, it may have been Facebook, it may have been another company, and she said, you all built these platforms you better do something about this, or we will. And my response is, it's not or we will, it's and we will. Right. It's we will do the appropriate right. and innovation-friendly thing right. with regulation, and you, the companies, need to be more proactive in integrating ethics into your decision-making uh, and into how you see your responsibility for the consequences foreseen or unforeseen of your products or your services. Uh, and consumers have to also wake up and play their part, although that's, at least in my view, a much more difficult challenge, as you've alluded to. Um, but it's not either or. It's not Democratic or Republican. It's not regulation or the companies. No. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. But the irony is this. I have a good friend. His name is Tristan Harris. And he uh, the was Google, the uh, Google ethicist. Right. That was his title. Mm -hmm. He had to resign because they didn't want to know about ethics. He had to resign and become essentially a whistleblower. And now he's on a crusade, and it's a great crusade to try and change some of that. So I want to come back to this word human, because I loved one of the chapters of your book. I love them all, but one in particular, chapter 11, what it means to be human is the right. title of the book. So can you comment a little bit on this blend of the importance of truth to humanity technology and the human side of the arts. And one of, you right. know, I look at the arts as one of the most fundamental ways we express our humanity. Right. So how do you see all of these interlinked? Art is here to essentially connect us to the divine, to, mm -hmm. to connect us to the deeper emotions. Um, you know, I, my wife and I wandered around the National Gallery yesterday. Oh, wonderful. And it's, it's one of the most, I almost thought I was suffering from Stendhal syndrome, which mm -hmm. is this notion that people who go to Florence and get overwhelmed at the Uffizia and get dizzy and uh -huh. faint. Mm -hmm. But it was almost to that level. There was so much great art mm -hmm. and so powerful, and the emotional connection to it was so strong that, you know, and we've all felt that. We've all been in a concert and just been taken away by Bruce Springsteen singing mm -hmm. some song or, you know, just something just moved us so deeply. So we know it's there. But art has also been, uh, as Thoreau said, uh, a, a way to throw some sand in the gears mm -hmm. of the machine, you know. And so art finds itself against the machine age, you know, and, and of course, you know, the, the machine of the con current age is the computer, right? And so 
Art is there to kind of mess with this notion of what I call techno-determinism, which is that the smartest cats in the room, the Mark Andreessen's, the Mark Zuckerberg's, the Larry Page's, will take us to where they want us to go, and we're just along for the ride. And if you don't want to be on the train, you're a Luddite. Mm -hmm. And that's not a way that society should work. We should begin to have a real discussion. I mean, you know, going back to your question about AI and robotics, the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, Steve Mnuchin, was asked this question. Do you worry that, you know, AI and robotics will cause an unemployment problem in the United States? And he says, oh, that's not a problem for 100 years. It's not even on our radar. Now, if this guy was still at Goldman Sachs, as mm -hmm. you probably know, he would have been fired for being mm -hmm. so stupid. But um, he's not, and he's the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And he's clueless. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the point is, art is here, and, and humanity, and part of you know, why some of us think maybe being on Facebook is not so good, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I, as an artist, as an author, used Facebook to promote myself. Mm -hmm. But once I was finished with that, I got off it. I got off Twitter. I got off all those mm -hmm. things. Because it's just a big time suck. Mm -hmm. So the other question is, how do we be human in a way that if these machines, if these services like Facebook are there to kind of try and grab your attention all the time. Um, is that healthy for you? Is it healthy that you're on there 200 times a day? Is it healthy that you're spending two hours a day looking at your newsfeed? I'm not so sure it is. And so, and are you human if you're doing that? I mean, I cite this weird statistic that like 150 people walked off like cliffs and things like that in the last year just because they were staring at their cell phone or walked into a bus or something, you know. I mean, so, you know, these, these addictions are probably not good for us. And if we don't really try and think about that and at least, I mean, my way originally was just to take a kind of break. I, I cite, I went up to this, Trappist Franciscan Monastery in Big Sur, California. And it was in a place where there was no cell service, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no internet, there's nothing there. And you're supposed to be quiet too, you're not supposed to talk. And so it's you and maybe a book, and that's all you've got for three or four days. And you can go at night and listen to the monks chanting and stuff like that, but you really, even at, at meals, you don't talk. And it, the first day, I felt like kind of nervous and weird. The second day, I felt more relaxed. But the third day, I was like, wow, this is great. I, I can actually read for three or four hours without checking my phone, without this kind of sense of distraction. And so you actually can get away from this stuff rather easily. You can get off the addiction. It's not like mm -hmm. trying to kick... But to come back to something you said earlier about your students at USC, um, the, the fact that these likes are a way to make them feel heard is the word you used. Yeah. 
and we have a broader need to feel seen. The question is, we're, you know, we're using technology and we're developing these addictions. Um, for example, there's a Chinese app called Meitu, you might have seen, which basically says you can take your picture and uh, you can you know, erase a few wrinkles, you can uh, you know, shave off a few pounds, you can rearrange your hair, and then you can right. go put yourself on a dating website. Right. Right? right. So none of this is who you really are. Right. And to the extent that you may get swipes or likes or whatever dating websites do, right. uh, you know, I've been married for third, you know, almost 30 years, so right. it's not my, really my right. area of expertise. But whatever they do, um, they're not liking the real person. No. And one of the things I worry about is who we really are connecting with who somebody else really is. And this comes back to truth. Um, right. To what extent do you, you know, we, our identity, who we really are, interacting with who somebody else really is, is also a respect for the importance of truth to humanity, is it not? The problems in this current age is that you're assumed that you have to self-promote yourself, always. You have to kind of make this idealized vision of yourself on your Instagram or your Facebook feed. And it may have nothing to do with what you feel inside, but it's how you feel you should present yourself vis-a-vis -vis other people. But one of the things we found in terms of doing research at the Innovation Lab was that some of these things are actually making people feel more alone. So if, when I was at Princeton in 1968, and it was a Thursday night or Friday night or, or a weekend and I didn't have a date, I think I could, I would go out and just hang with my friends or something. But if you're at USC today on a Thursday night, which is the big party night, if you're alone, you see all these feeds from all your friends having parties and doing this. You feel even more alone than you used to feel. Mm -hmm. So I'm not like positive that these are, these are helpful for, and clearly for mental health professionals, they're not. They're, they're, they're causing more anomie than we used to have. So this notion that you have to present this fake self of yourself is, um, it's hard to maintain, you know? And, and once you do it, you have to keep doing it. And you know, it's, and, you know uh, uh, for me, it's just like, oh, you know, I have, 5,000 Facebook followers. Well, I, I don't care, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't, I don't feel like, mm -hmm. oh, well, if I don't post every day, then I wouldn't keep them there. Well, okay, fine. But I also wonder, to come back to this, this central um, theme of truth, if we are dis disturbing truth, if we are manipulating truth, weaponizing truth today, what's that going to do to our ability to learn from when today becomes history, to learn from history? Let's be honest, there, there has been the use of propaganda. Mm -hmm. Going far, far way, way, way before Way, Facebook. way before us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, obviously Goebbels felt if you had control of the radio network, you had control of people's minds. And, and it could be that Facebook is just the new radio network, right? So, you know, we've always had to wrestle with this as a society. It's just, we also had a kind of centralized source of truth. In the U.S., in, when I was growing up, it was the three evening television right. news shows. And Walter Cronkite would come on there and he would tell ABC, you, NBC that's the CBS. way it is. Right. 
That's the end way he would end. Mm -hmm. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And pretty much was. Mm -hmm. It was the accepted version of the truth mm -hmm. presented to everybody. Mm -hmm. And right and left all saw the same stuff. Because and, facts are facts. Yeah. And it was based on the unacknowledged facts mm -hmm. of the existence. That does not exist anymore. There is no hearth side in which everybody gathers around every night to understand what went on that day. That's missing, mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. Now, can we go back to that? Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so. I don't think there's any way we can be, get back to so it. So in this which world is why where, where social media is claiming that it's, you know, and it does connect, we are still missing this, this common uh, gathering around a common story, gathering around a common set of facts. CNN is trying to get it back. Uh, you may have seen this advertisement with the Apple. And yeah. it says, you know, this is an Apple and you can look at it from the left right. or the right, politically or otherwise. Right. You can call it a banana. You can even believe it's a banana, right. but it's still an Apple. So, you know, we see Christian Amanpour saying, I'm not worried about neutrality. I'm worried about truth. Um, okay, but let's, let's be clear. In the United States, on any given night, mm -hmm. the CNN broadcast is reaching 2 million people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, on... And the MSNBC broadcast is reaching 2 million people, mm -hmm. and the Fox News broadcast is reaching 2 million people. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not the common conversation. It's not the common conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not the fact that Walter Cronkite reached 20 million people a night, and that mm -hmm. was the, the common conversation. Mm -hmm. We don't have that anymore, and because the news media is getting more and more and more fractured, mm -hmm. it's going to get worse before it gets better. So on that, how do we have this broader societal conversation about, in particular, the ethical implications of technology and truth that I've been advocating? How do we go about making this happen? It's really hard. I mean, perhaps the only way it can work is start at some kind of very local level. Okay. In other words, you say, okay, in my town, we're gonna try and get people in the same physical space and we're gonna try, I mean, it's the old Vermont town hall meeting, mm -hmm. right? We're gonna try and in this town figure out what we think mm -hmm. should happen. And maybe then we feel kind of empowered in a mm -hmm. sense of, okay, we all got together and we argued about this mm -hmm. and we decided this is what we should do about putting a stoplight on, uh, <laughs> on the street or something mm -hmm. like that, you know? I mean, it seems to me that some kind of localism mm -hmm. is maybe the only way where we can start these conversations. Very interesting point. Um, because the basic problem is that it's almost impossible to have a national conversation. I don't even think in the UK you can have a national conversation. Mm -hmm. I, and I know in the United States you, can. you can't. Right. It's too... It's split into two worlds, mm -hmm. and they, they, they have no common frame of reference of either right or left. And so, but maybe in Pacific Palisades, California, I can have a conversation. I know there's a bunch of people there who are Republicans, mm -hmm. a bunch of people there are Democrats, but I bet you we could come together because I saw it. they're all really concerned about what driverless cars are going to do. Well, And they're just all really example. concerned about- In my town, this guy wanted to come in and put a little shopping center there. Mm -hmm. His name was Rick Caruso, and he came and he had three mm -hmm. town hall meetings mm -hmm. in, the, in the school gymnasium, mm -hmm. 
and everybody came out and we all agreed what it should be, mm-hmm. how big it could mm-hmm. be, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't think this is impossible. I think that's a really interesting suggestion, which is to bring it back to human connection. Yeah. Um, I'd like to wind up. You started at the very beginning talking about Martin Luther King and this very prescient quote about sort of sleeping through a revolution. Right. Today, is there somebody, is there another Martin Luther King uh, in any walk of life who inspires you to think that there are people who are thinking about all of this in the right way? That's the missing question. I don't think there is. I mean, I would like to think there is. There was this guy named General McRaven, and he ran the special ops team. He was admiral. He was admiral. He ran the special ops team that hunted down bin Laden. And then he decided and he retired from the Navy, and he became the chancellor of um, University of Texas. And the day that Trump, a few months ago, which is railing on CNN, saying it's all fake news and all fake news, he wrote a little essay, and I'll send you a link to it, in, in which he just said, this is nonsense. And this was a, an admiral. And he said, this is, you know, the First Amendment is the, the foundation of our society, and, and there is truth, and we have to be willing to accept that and stuff. And I just thought, wow, there's a guy who, you know, kind of came through the crucible of war fighting for 25 years, now has gone back to the University of Texas as the chancellor, and he's willing to speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. And I don't see a lot of people doing that, Mm -hmm. you know, quite honestly. There are very few politicians Mm -hmm. that so that's a very interesting right example, now. and I think maybe it's something we both need to work on with our students, to say, how do you need to start thinking about all of this? How, yeah. what, what is your Martin Luther King moment today? Right, right. Um, and where is that person going to come mm-hmm. from that inspires us? And of course, that of course means we need kind of a sense of common purpose too. Mm-hmm. Because quite honestly, in 1963, it was... It made sense as me, as a young, white, 14-year-old, to say, I want to be involved in this movement right. for racial justice. Right. The civil rights movement can be my guiding yeah, principle. Yeah, and I was welcomed into mm-hmm. that movement. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, thank you so much. It was really totally a pleasure. fabulous. <laughs> thank you.